My name is Brett, and it is my joy to be opening the scriptures with you today in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Just one word uh, uh, of warning uh, in terms of a content warning of where we're going to be going today. We are covering the topic of sexual immorality. Uh, again, we are going to be dealing with the topic of homosexuality today. And so parents of students, students sitting with your parents, maybe you're not sitting with your parents, uh, just a heads up to you that that's where we're going. We sent that message out to uh, all, all those who are involved on the youth uh, group that we have uh, that you can get emails through regularly and uh, sent that out. But just a heads up to you that that's where we're going today. I'd like to invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's word. Today's scripture comes from 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You may be seated. As you're seated, let me pray for us. Holy Spirit, we pray for your help as we engage a very difficult topic of foundational truth, of the way that we live in light of the saving work of Jesus. Father, we thank you for your love. Thank you for your grace and your mercy that you've poured out upon us. We pray that you would open our eyes that we might behold your glory. You would open our ears that we might hear your word. That you would open our hearts that we might believe that in believing we would glorify you through the way that we live, through the work of our hands as we give ourselves to all manner of things in life. We pray for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. This text is dealing with who we once were and who we now are. This is what we're going to look at. Who we once were and who we now are. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, the first part of verse 9, says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Whenever you see Paul the Apostle say the words in, in the letter that we're in, in 1 Corinthians, he says, do you not know? You know that he's about to drop a correction on them. It's his nice way of saying, you should have already known. Do you not know? And I, I know that Paul loves this church very much, and I know that at times it seems as though he may be writing from a place of exasperation, but he loves them. I, 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 Think of the parent who walks into the room and their 10-year-old kid is sitting there with finger paints and just eating them. And the parent goes, you're 10. <laughs> Do you not know? <laughs> you should not be. I remember when I was in, in grade one, so I guess that would have been six. It's probably the only memory I have from grade one, aside from the fact that I was the teacher's pet, which would not shock any of you. I, I walked into the classroom actually with the teacher, I remember distinctly. And um, there was a girl sitting in her desk, and she had her head tilted back like this. And another girl was squirting white glue into her mouth. And the teacher said, <laughs> effectively, do you not know? <laughs> There's certain things that, that, that when we are taught how to live, we should understand. And that's kind of what Paul is saying here when he says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? He spent a year and a half, two years teaching them, 
He's written at least one letter before this letter to them, and yet they're confused. There's some misunderstanding that he's correcting. He actually uses this phrase in chapter 5, do you not know? He used it a couple times in the text that we looked at last week. He uses it today. He uses it a couple times in the text that's coming next week. Then he uses it again in chapter 9 because evidently there were a few things that they did not know. And he wants to correct them. He's talking about the reality that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. He's talking about the intentional wrongdoer, the unrighteous. He's talking about the sinner in contrast to the saint. We've discussed this as we've gone through 1 Corinthians, and if you're new with us, we've developed the category of the sinner and the saint, the one who does not know Jesus and the one who does know Jesus. Look at this just a few verses earlier in chapter 6. In verse 1, it says, When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare to go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? It's the text that we looked at last week, that, that there is a distinction between the sinner and the saint in the way that we work together as a community. The person who is not a follower of Jesus and the person who is a follower of Jesus, there is a distinction made here. The unrighteous and the righteous. All of these phrases are saying the same thing, that there is a distinction not only in their standing before God, but there is a distinction in the way they conduct themselves, or at least there should be this distinction in the way that they conduct themselves. And that's what Paul is writing about. That's why he's correcting them. Again, verse 9, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the blank nor the blank will inherit the kingdom of God. Yeah, I'm keeping the list out of it for a second because I don't want you to be distracted by the list. I don't want you to miss the point that there is a distinction here between the sinner and the saint. And that distinction is the sinner or the unrighteous is outside of the community. They have not built their life on their identity in Christ, in who God says they are in Christ. They have not come to faith in Jesus. They have not received the Holy Spirit. And because of that, Paul says they will not inherit the kingdom of God. His argument is that one of the ways you know if a Christian is a Christian, or maybe by way of contrast saying it like this, saying one of the ways that you know if a person is a follower of Jesus or not a follower of Jesus is by the fruit of their life and what they give themselves to. So he gives them a list of behaviors that are not in line with the will of God. He says, for example, people who do this or that in an ongoing unrepentant manner that they are not going to receive, that they are not going to inherit the kingdom of God. Because by their continued participation in this sin, they are revealing that they are not followers of Jesus. Again, look at the text. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? He says, do not be deceived. Neither the blank nor the blank will inherit the kingdom of God. Okay, here's the point. It is possible to be deceived about your status as a saint who will inherit the kingdom of God. That's why he is writing this to them. If you are deeply committed to living into these sinful practices in an ongoing and unrepentant manner, then you are living by a worldly standard 
that is not aligned with the kingdom of God. You are not considering God in the way that you are living. You are caught up in what may bring momentary satisfaction, but you are precluding God from being involved in the conversation of how you conduct yourself. You are not considering the values of the kingdom that Jesus came to establish. What he's saying is, if you are continually participating in sin that looks like this, this list that he gives them, and and all of these things would have been happening in the church in Corinth, or he would not have written to them in this manner. He says, if you're living into these sinful practices in an ongoing and unrepentant manner, it means you are categorically outside of the kingdom of God. If you are celebrating or boasting in your life in these sinful practices, if you are not repentant, he's saying, do not be deceived. You have not surrendered yourself to the kingship of Jesus, and you will not inherit the kingdom of God. So look at this together. Verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And let me be clear. He is not saying that the saints in the church will never sin. That is not what he's saying. He is saying that continued, unrepentant, sinful action that boasts and celebrates in this sin reveals that you are not yet a follower of Jesus. Because if you were a follower of Jesus and you were caught in sin like this, you would repent of your sin, you would submit yourself to the Lordship of Christ, you would begin to live out of that transformed life that the Holy Spirit is working, and you would inherit the kingdom of God. Now I want you to see a couple of things in this text. There's a list of 10 things in this list of sin that are unrepentant behaviors that mark the kind of person, the kind of life of a person who will not inherit the kingdom of God. It looks like there's nine things listed, but one of them is a combo, which I'll explain in a few minutes. So just as as I read that list to you and you hear it, what strikes you at first? There's a number of things we can think of when we hear this. The first thing I, I think of is, If you're at all familiar with the Bible, we should see that this is not a controversial list. As as one scholar said, there's no curveball here. If you're familiar with the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation, you know that this is repeated over and over and over again in scripture. Paul's not inventing something here. The entirety of the Old Testament and everything that flows out of that in Jesus' ministry that we see in the Gospels into the New Testament is all very consistent. There's nothing shocking in this list. Notice something else. Paul groups together some things that we would think are really, really serious with some things that we may, tempted, we may be tempted to believe are not as serious. So whichever way you see the list and whatever you think is horrible and what is not that big of a deal, hear this. If you think greed and someone cheating on their spouse are the two worst things on this list, and you just could not fathom 
greed, and adultery. Take whatever does not strike you as being of that level of import and elevate it to that level of severity. So if you see something on that list that you're like, well, it's not really that big of a deal when you think about adultery, don't be tempted to diminish your view of adultery. Be tempted to elevate your view of the thing that you think is fine. Nothing is being diminished here. Paul is saying, if you're going to continue in sin like this, don't be deceived. You are revealing that you are not a member of the body of Christ and you will not inherit the kingdom of God. And that sounds really, really strong. It is really, really strong. Here's why. Paul loves them. He loves them enough to make it a bit awkward. He loves them enough that they would recognize that there's a reason he is speaking to them with this measure of strength. See, the most loving thing you can do is care about the eternal consequences associated with ongoing unrepentant sin. That's love. Paul loves them. The warning here is this. People who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. The command in the text is do not be deceived. Andrew Wilson said the nature of sin is that it deceives us into thinking it is not that serious. Paul pleads with the Corinthians not to allow deception to dilute the severity of what they are doing. Here's the thing about this text. Paul is doing ministry in a context. This is situational based upon who he is speaking to. Just as we are doing ministry in a context, his context was the first century pagan world that had not heard the gospel. Our context is the 21st century pagan world that has sort of blown past the gospel. Many have not heard. Our contexts are not that different, though they'd be separated by 2,000 years. Because you're a product of 21st century Vancouver, you, you see this list and you might hear it as it says. It says the sexually immoral, idolater, adulterer, men who practice homosexuality, thieves, the greedy, the drunkards, the revilers, and swindlers. You may hear it as that, and that's wonderful. Or when I read this list, you may hear it like this. Want, 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 men who practice homosexuality, want, 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 want. And I get it. On one hand, if the reason the text sounds like that to you is that you have elevated the sin of homosexuality to some kind of super sin and all the rest of the normal sins are, don't need that much of attention, but we'll talk about homosexuality. If that's the thing and you've elevated it to a weird place, you just need to repent. If you think homosexuality is worse than being sexually immoral or greedy or idolatrous, then you've lost the plot. The list provides a sample of people who need Jesus. Nothing more, nothing less. There is good news for every single person included on that super list. The gospel transforms every single kind of person who is listed here. Now, on the other hand, if the reason that you hear wah, 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 homosexuality, wah, 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 when I read this text, if the reason you do that 
is because you have lived in Vancouver for a while or you have lived in Canada for a while or you have lived in a part of the world for a while that celebrates this and that says that Christianity is backwards on the wrong side of history and all the other things that people like to say and that you have been sort of shocked into silence because of your biblical, historical Christian view on human sexuality, then I understand why you hear it that way. Because some people use this issue as the litmus test of whether you are a person of love or not. That's a difficult tension to live with. So if you just genuinely want to be equipped for the conversation, to walk through conversations with the folks who would accuse you of such, that they might know how much God loves them, that they might know how much you love them. If, if you want to be equipped for that conversation, I'm, I love it. That's the right reason. I'm going to do my best in a minute. But this list is fairly comprehensive in some ways. It talks about the sexually immoral. That is any sex outside the confines of a covenant marriage between one man and one woman to the exclusion of all others. That is all sexual activity that is outside the confines of a marriage. In that, under the banner of sexual immorality, I would add the use of pornography in any of its forms. Idolaters are those who elevate anything or anyone to a position of preeminence or prominence that is designed to be reserved for God and God alone. It is placing someone or something on the throne that is destined for God and God alone. It is exchanging the glory of God for the worship of the created thing, it says in Romans 1. That is idolatry. Adulterers, that is when a married man or a married woman has a sexual relationship outside of the confines of their covenant marriage. Thieves steal things that are not theirs. The greedy have an insatiable desire for more material goods, or I would even say a covetous desire of somebody else's things. Drunkards get drunk. Revilers, that is a slanderer or someone who is verbally abusive. A swindler is like your general crook your charlatan, your extortioner. I think of multi-level marketing schemes. The swindler. That's eight, and that leaves two more. It's the men who practice homosexuality. That's our list of 10. Now, because the Corinthians had previously misunderstood some stuff about Paul's instructions on how to deal with sexual immorality, we looked at that a number of weeks ago, Paul is working very, very hard to be very, very clear with what he writes to them in this passage. The translation of the Bible that we are using is called the English Standard Version. You'll see that as it has come up on the screen various times already. You've heard it read already. It groups two different terms under the heading of men who practice homosexuality. If you have a Bible, you'll see in the footnote in this translation that it says, the two Greek terms translated by this phrase refer to the passive and active partners in consensual homosexual acts. There's two terms that are being grouped together under the heading of men who practice homosexuality. I'm going to take you through the terms. I don't always do this where we break into the original language. I, I don't always do it for a couple of reasons. One, I trust our translation very, very highly. Men and women who have spent much more time than me studying Greek have translated the New Testament. We have a very, very, very reliable Bible. And the only reason that I go underneath the surface is to just show you exactly what it's saying. 
I don't do it very often because I don't want you to think, well, I don't know how to read it in the original language. No, no, you have an unbelievably clear translation. There are many, many unbelievably clear, very faithful translations. We are using one of them. The other is, I'm not a Greek scholar. I've studied enough Greek to be like the level one first aider. Okay, you show up at the thing of like, I'll just like put pressure on the wound. Okay, that's my Greek. I've studied it. I do study it. I'm not translating the Bible for you. Okay. The first term is malakoi. This refers to the passive homosexual act, the passive partner in the homosexual act. Use of this word outside of the New Testament, which is one of the ways that we verify the way it's used in the New Testament, reflects this meaning. Some translators want to translate this as male prostitutes, but there is actually a very specific Greek word for male prostitute that Paul does not use here. Paul opts for a more generic term to be really clear that it is not just prostitution he is talking about. And the second term is arsenokoite. This actually has a strong connection to the Old Testament, and there is a Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint, and this is what the Bible in that era would have been for many, many people who were reading it. Leviticus 18.22 and Leviticus 20.13 are both condemning homosexuality where it says this in Leviticus 20.13. Whoever lies, coiten, with a male, arson, as with a woman. You see that that is a compound word Paul has used in arsenicoite. Paul borrows the language of the condemning of homosexuality in Leviticus to coin a brand new term that literally means men who lie with men. Before this, in 1 Corinthians, there is no surviving literature that uses that word. I believe that Paul, and I believe among a host of scholars, who believe that Paul was coining this term so that he might be exceedingly clear about what he was meaning. That is why when it says malakoi, as the general term for the passive partner in the homosexual act, and I say that that is a more general term where he could have used a more specific term about male prostitution and he does not, Paul chooses his words very carefully. Remember, he is writing to them to correct misunderstandings that they have had. He is being very careful with what he is writing. Some have tried to argue that these terms refer to cult prostitution or what is called pederasty, which is men and boys or they would say that it refers to rape. But what I want you to hear is that there is actually no textual basis for that argument whatsoever. Besides Paul's use of the terms here, as well as he uses it in 1 Timothy 1, and what he writes in Romans chapter 1 with regard to homosexuality, men and men and women and women, this confirms the plain usage of this being Sexual activity between two consenting men. Okay, in a letter where he is trying to clarify misunderstandings, I just want to say it again. He has gone to great lengths to be clear. He invents a term so that they would understand both men in the homosexual act are in sin and both the active and passive role in consensual homosexual sexual activity is to be forsaken as ungodly and sinful behavior that does not conform to God's revealed will for flourishing human sexuality. Okay, let me say four things about this. First, Christ City Church holds a traditional biblical view of marriage, which we believe 
is to be reserved for one man and one woman to the exclusion of all others. This means that we believe that sex is a gift from God to be exclusively enjoyed in the covenant union of one man and one wife to the exclusion of all others. Therefore, any sexual activity outside of marriage, whether heterosexual, homosexual, or polyamorous relationships, is sin. Second thing I'd like to say, we have same-sex attracted people in our church. They have made the decision to be sexually celibate as a way to honor God with their life while also acknowledging their sexuality. This is not easy, and these brothers and sisters in Christ who live this way should be applauded and encouraged, for they have chosen the narrow path. If you are a Christian and you are same-sex attracted, this is a safe place for you to honor God among a community of his people who love you and will stand with you as you seek to be faithful. I want to be very clear. This text does not condemn same-sex attracted Christians. This text condemns acting on sexual desires that are sinful, whether heterosexual or homosexual. Whether it's premarital sexual activity or extramarital heterosexual activity, homosexual sexual activity, or other things under the banner of sexual immorality, like I said, like viewing pornography in any form, they're condemned in Scripture. This text is not condemning same-sex attracted Christians. It is condemning what the Bible calls sexual immorality. Third, those of you who would consider yourself an ally to the LGBTQ population, community in our city and, and beyond, and you use the word ally in that sense that you support and encourage, um, I, would, I would ask you humbly to consider this text and to consider if you are encouraging behavior that would mean someone may not inherit the kingdom of God. I think the time for being complacent on this is long gone. The time for clarity is here. Romans chapter 1 verse 32 forbids your approval of that which God forbids. We have to know this. We love all people but we want to love them into new eternal life in Christ. And loving someone and giving them a blanket affirmation of the way they live are not the same thing. I can love someone who I believe is making a terrible error in judgment. My love and my affirmation are not the same thing. For instance, to take it out of the question of homosexuality, if I knew someone who was in an extramarital affair, I would love them and I would be very concerned about the decisions they are making. I would not affirm that. I would not say that I'm an ally to the adulterer. And I think we have to be very cautious with the language that we use. If what you're trying to say is you love all people and want to love them into the kingdom, I'm on your team. If what you mean is that you give a blanket affirmation for people to live in any way, shape, or form, you are in disagreement with the scriptures. And it's very important that we handle this with care. Fourth, wherever you've been and wherever you are at on this topic, the call for every single person in this room, every person sitting here and who will hear this message, the call for every one of you, no matter orientation whatsoever, 
The call for you is to submit your sexuality to the lordship of Christ. So don't walk in hypocritical judgment of those who sin differently than you. Don't walk in hypocritical judgment of those who are caught in what may be public sin while you have a private browser history that is a nightmare. Get before the Lord. Let's be consistent and clear with how we seek to live. The call for every person here is to repent of sin and to not hide in isolation. I would say, with a topic this heavy, you need to understand that we have walked with many people through this. Our staff, our pastoral team, our elders, our biblical counselors are consistently walking through issues in this regard. Do not isolate yourself and think that you're alone and do not think that you're too far gone to come and ask for help. We want to walk through this with you. Now, to those of you who would like to be better equipped for this conversation, I just realized how ridiculous this is right now. I have 12 books to recommend. I'm not suggesting you start reading 12 books on the topic at the same time. I'm suggesting that one of the books I'm going to recommend may stand out to you as exceedingly helpful. Okay? This is going to be posted um, on the website under this sermon, so you can find the list that you see on the screen behind me. You can find that um, in that place. Um, I just want to tell you a little bit about the authors of each book um, and why I think it's helpful. Sam Albury wrote a a book called Is God Anti-Gay? Sam is actually a pastor at a church that one of my friends pastors at in Nashville. Um, He's a pastor theologian. He travels around talking about this and a lot of other things. He's an apologetics guy. Uh, Wonderful, wonderful man of God. Same-sex attracted, single, celibate, and very, very clear. I love short books. This is about 90 pages long. If you want one quick read that you can sit, you can crush it in one sitting, maybe two, here you go. It's a great, great book. Sam is so faithful and he takes shots from people for the way that he has communicated his faithfulness to God. The the LGBTQ community is all over him as somebody who is a self-hating gay Christian. And there are people in the more fundamentalist strains of the church of Jesus who are all over him because he has same-sex attractions. He's really clear about what the Bible says about that here in his own personal story. Uh, Kevin DeYoung wrote a book called What Does the Bible Really Teach About Homosexuality? Kevin DeYoung was a pastor of a university church for a long time and dealt with this issue a lot in the context of his own ministry. This is really, really helpful and has a number of questions that are the the questions people are asking about, and it's in here, so it's a good resource to to kind of flip through in that way as well. I have nowhere to put these. This is awesome. Um, Rachel Gilson uh, wrote a book called Born Again This Way which is a play on Lady Gaga's thing. And anytime you put something like that into a title of a book, I'm in. Um, Rachel Gilson, born again this way. She was a a lesbian who came to Christ, repented of her sin, is now married, has kids, serves in ministry, campus ministry. Really, really good book. Uh, Really compelling story in the way that she tells it. She's so so open about uh, about, her ongoing struggles and all of that, even though uh, as a married woman serving in ministry. Um, Wesley Hill wrote a book called Washed and Waiting. The washed actually comes out of verse uh, 10 or 11 in our text, wherever that is. I should know that. Verse 11. Such were some of you, but you were washed. That's what this is. And waiting comes out of uh, Romans chapter 8, where we are waiting for the renewal of all things. 
Uh, Wesley Hill is a New Testament theologian, same-sex attracted guy, really, really helpful uh, how he shares his story and what the Bible says about it. Uh, Jackie Hill Perry is a rapper, uh, artist, Bible teacher, author. Uh, it's called Gay Girl, Good God. She's awesome. Um, her stuff is good, and she's also a really good writer. And so it's a, like a beautifully written book about her story, being a lesbian and, and being saved, repenting of her sin. She's now married, and her and her husband have a, a ministry together. Um, this book is called Transforming Homosexuality by Denny Burke and Heath Lambert. This is written from um, the biblical counselor perspective. So if you want to know a little bit about how you can walk through this and how we can think about this, it is exceedingly biblical, and at times I would say a little bit rigid, um, I, just by the way, I don't agree with 100% of any of these books. That's why I'm giving you 12. You should look at what the Bible says. You should look at what some other people say. And then you should be able to form your, your theological position on this and how you want to live it out. So I, I recommend this book. We, we use it around here. Um, Compassion Without Compromise by Adam Barr and Ron Sitlow. Uh, Ron Sitlow was a same-sex attracted teenager uh, who was in the church and felt like he could never share that with anyone. And he, he just carried the weight of this, this he called like a shameful secret that he had. And um, he ended up expressing it to someone that he felt like would, they wouldn't judge him or they would accept him for who he was. And so it wasn't a Christian. Uh, he, he, he shared this as a teenager with a man. And then that man sexually abused him. And it spun him into a crazy life um, where he, he continued to live out of that. And he got into the scene and, and then God saved him. He's now married with, I think he's got four sons and uh, is a pastor of a church. Again, compelling story. Uh, Christopher Yuan, uh, Holy Sexuality in the Gospel. Christopher's story is that he was uh, not a Christian and living a pretty wild life uh, as a gay man. His mother was so uh, ashamed of what he was doing that she considered suicide. Then she came to Christ, spent like the next number of years fasting and praying for her son. Then he got saved, and then he wrote a theological book about what the Bible says about it and is a faithful Christian man. Um, and then a couple of books that are not on the topic of homosexuality, but that will give you um, a picture of what a biblical human flourishing in our sexuality looks like. Divine Sex by Jonathan Grant. Uh, he actually did a degree at Regent College here in Vancouver. He's in New Zealand. This is a very good book. I think it won Christianity Today's Book of the Year a few years ago. And then I love this book. It's Glenn Harrison. It's called A Better Story, God, Sex, and Human Flourishing. And it will give you a perspective of how the church of Jesus Christ, when we are faithful, can actually help create a city that flourishes with regard to family and sexuality. Um, there's a few books that I don't have with me. Um, uh, I would recommend Rosaria Butterfield's book, um, Some Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. You can see it on there. Unbelievable story. She was a lesbian who was an English professor at a, a fairly liberal university, and then she, because some people loved her and encouraged her and brought her into their home and, and just evangelized her, she had questions about God, and they shared Christ with her, and she came to Christ, and now she's married to a Presbyterian minister, and she writes um, and, and talks about this a lot. Um, there's a, a book by a guy named Robert Gagnon, who, um, and that is how you pronounce his name, because he's American, not Canadian, it would be Gagnon, right? Which is just, just I know, okay? Uh, uh, that's, he wrote like the authoritative book on what the Bible says about homosexuality. And it's huge and it's a dense read, um, but I would recommend that. And I think that's all 12. Again, I wouldn't suggest that you like start reading all 12 of them. But I do think if you want to be equipped 
There are good resources from godly people who believe what the Bible says about this and will show you how to love others. It's very, very important. As it pertains to the arguments that we hear quite often in the conversations, whether it be at the water cooler, at the staff table, on the job site, in the education institution that you're a part of, at the playground, whatever it is, you hear a number of things. People quite often say, well, the Christian perspective on homosexuality is too rigid. Jesus didn't really talk about homosexuality. Um, not really. Uh, he didn't directly. Let me, let me tell you why. Um, Jesus affirmed the traditional Old Testament vision of marriage. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus actually affirmed the authority of the Old Testament. And Jesus was a really faithful Jewish man. Like I know sometimes we, we forget that. Jesus was a very faithful Jewish man doing ministry in a Jewish context in Judea. Um, if you were caught in homosexual practice in that part of the world at that time in history, you would be taken out and stoned. So yeah, Jesus didn't really have to talk about it a whole lot. Jesus affirms the biblical vision of marriage and the biblical vision of sexuality. I think it's important that we know how to answer that question. Second question that we would often get uh, is, well, Paul is only talking here in the text about exploitive same-sex relationships. He's not talking about a covenantal love kind of relationship. And I would say that is not what the text is saying. You cannot make that argument from the language and the use where Paul is doing that. Now, Paul was not doing ministry where Jesus was, where it was an assumption that marriage was between one man and one woman. Paul was doing ministry in the pagan context where homosexual practice was normal. So that's why he has to deal with it. He deals with it in Rome. He deals with it with his young pastoral apprentice, Timothy, in the places that they had traveled. And then he deals with it here in Corinthians. Paul is not just prohibiting exploitive relationships, as I've gone to great lengths to show you in the two words that are used in the text. I believe he is being exceedingly clear that that is not what he's talking about. One of the things that would be said, the third argument you would hear often, um, would be that I just believe in a God of love. I would say amen. I do too. Um, But I also believe the God of love who gave us the scriptures gets to define what love means. I don't think we get to place our 21st century definitions on the ancient text. I think we have to allow the text that is authoritative to inform how we live. I would say, yes, of course God is a God of love, for God so loved the world that he sent his only son. Yes. Amen. Yes. God is a God of love. It actually says in 1 John that God is love. Yes. Amen. Jesus also said, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. We don't get to redefine things. Our faithfulness to God is when we come under the authority of Scripture. There is no text in the Bible that says God is love, therefore you can live in sexual immorality. The opposite is true. And again, don't confuse love with affirmation or affirmation with love. God is love, but that does not make sexual sin acceptable. But in the words of one author, it does make it forgivable. Praise God. Who we once were, My second point, which is very short, who we now are. Look at verse 11. And such for some of you. (laughs) But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Um, This list that I've just spent all this time explaining was who the church of God in Corinth was, before Paul showed up to tell them about Jesus. Such were some of you. It's who we once were before we met Jesus. I've 
spent all week thinking about this text and spending time studying this text. I've wept over this text every day this week. I don't exactly know why I couldn't get it all out once. (laughs) This text is so good. When I think about who I once was and the mess of sin I was in, such for some of you. I didn't come to Christ till I was 20. I checked a lot of boxes on the list. And I know how it feels to have a new identity in Christ. To just be washed. To be accepted. Not to be loved. I want that for you. The old is gone and the new has come. It said we heard first, Second Corinthians 5.17 already. Such were some of you when you were living apart from the knowledge of God. See, what breaks you free of the normal worldly way of thinking about human sexuality and, and, and how we live into the truth of who God is and how he's called us to live, it's the realization of who God is and what he's done for you in Christ By the Spirit of God, the text says. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are breaking you free of a disproportionate focus on the here and now and making you alive to the eternality of life with God. You have to consider what is happening in light of eternity, not what's happening in light of this week. You were washed, you were made clean, you were made new. This is pointing back to baptism, which points to our identification with the life and the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We are now also dead to sin and alive in Christ. And so I can look back at my baptism and know that I've been washed. Not just by the act of baptism, but by what it points us to. You were sanctified. You were made holy. Christ City, you are saints. That is true of you if you're a follower of Jesus. You were justified. You were declared righteous. You were saved. You're sanctified and justified. These words are pointing to the status change from sinners to saints and how we have already inherited the kingdom of God. How? By grace, through faith in Christ. Because of what Christ has accomplished in his perfect life and his atoning death and his resurrection and power, we now have everything that we need to repent of sinful behavior and inherit the kingdom of God. This is good news. Paul's whole point is that once you've repented from sin, you you need to progressively pursue becoming who you already are in Christ. You need to align your life with the will of God. See, changing your direction and aligning your life with God's will is what repentance looks like in action. You turn from sin and you align yourself with the way of God and you walk with him. And he empowers you to obey everything he commands you to do. If you repent of sin, you can be assured of your inheritance of the kingdom. Now, young people here, students, high school, university, college, I've never been a student in 2021 with a bunch of other 16, 17, 20-year-olds. 
I sure love you. I pray for you. Pray that your joy would be found in Christ, that you would live in the power of the Spirit, that you would know the depth of the love of God for you as he looks at you as his child. (laughs) What the world celebrates today, what your friends and your classmates may celebrate about life today is not what is celebrated in Scripture. It is not what is celebrated in the kingdom of God. And you have to see that what may gain you social standing right now, what may make you interesting in your group of friends, or what may gain you acceptance into a group of your peers in this moment, you got to know that it won't matter 10,000 years from now. If your friends celebrate drunkenness or sexual promiscuity or even if they celebrate the physical beauty of how many people that they have and how many people want to be with them in a sexual way, I just want to say to you, don't conform your agenda to their agenda. Walk with Jesus. Many of us have been down that path apart from Christ. The text says, and such were some of us. Go talk to some people around here. We'll tell you. It's who we once were, but we've been washed, and it's not who we now are. And that's the best thing that's ever happened. I know the temptation to be accepted in all areas of life is very strong, but just let me tell you, it's empty in the end. The surpassing worth of knowing and honoring God The beauty of that, it eclipses any short-term satisfaction that you're going to find by being accepted and celebrated among your peers for the wrong things. Be celebrated for your godliness and your love. Be celebrated for the way you care, not for your participation in things that will destroy you. Be patient, knowing that the promises of God are good to you and, and, and for all of you. Hear me. Come to Jesus. Let him wash you. Know the power of the Holy Spirit at work in your life. Know God as your perfect Father who intends to bless you in ways that you could not have ever expected. And know the God who loves you with a depth of love that you cannot yet comprehend. And just trust him.